0: How's it going everyone? We good? All right. Well, I noticed while Ryan was giving the announcements. Um, this happens a lot. It actually kind of drives me crazy. You can pray for me. Um, I noticed while he was giving announcements that our spotlights aren't aimed properly. So I'll try to stay in the I'll try to stay in the light. There's probably a bit of a biblical lesson in there about staying in the light. But there was an event here last night, and I got a photograph in the middle of, I got a photograph sent to me in the middle of the event of a picture of someone up on a uh, scissor lift messing with our spotlights, and that, that made my weekend, so that, that was awesome. But like I said, I'll, uh, I'll try to stay in the light, so uh, it's kind of gloomy in here. All right. Well, it's my privilege to be able to be with you guys this morning and to shift in my capacity to, to teach God's Word Uh, I got to tell you, this is an interesting text. I had some pretty significant roadblocks this week, and then I had a massive breakthrough. Like, okay, this is amazing. I'm loving this. And I was having so much fun studying and preparing. And so I just hope that the way that the Lord ministered to me this morning, that he ministers to you through his word, because that's what it's really all about, right? It's really about connecting with Jesus. And, And when we preach and when we share God's word, this is not a performative thing, what we're trying to do is create a greater awareness of Jesus and position ourselves uh, in, in a place where the Holy Spirit of God can move in our hearts and that we would be drawn into a closer relationship with him. So that is my hope this morning, and I hope that doesn't fall over. We'll see how it goes. But imagine, imagine you, are, you are on a plane, a small Cessna. There's three people on the plane, minding your own business, you're flying, just going along, everything seems to be going fine, and then all of a sudden, in this small little airplane, you look ahead and you see that the pilot is now unconscious and unresponsive. Good times, right? Not exactly what you want to see when you're in a little plane, flying from the Bahamas to Florida. This is what happened in real life a little over, uh, a little, actually a little under a year ago. There was uh, three people on the plane, one of the pilot. The pilot is unresponsive. And then someone jumps up into the uh, passenger seat, and thankfully, it was one of those planes that has the dual controls. And this is what the air traffic controllers hear over the radio. My pilot is unresponsive, and I have no idea how to fly this airplane. <laughs> Imagine not only, I mean, clearly it's an adrenaline rush for the person that was a p- passenger and is now a pilot. But imagine the thrill, and I mean that in a scary way, and the adrenaline rush of the air traffic controllers. You ever listen to air traffic control on the radio? I mean, unless you're a total weirdo like me. I mean, it's pretty boring, just chatter, right? And, but suddenly this comes across. And so they rally and they figure out what they were going to do about it. They actually weren't even sure where the plane was. The air traffic control reaches out and they're like, what's your location? And the guy had no idea, so they told him to start following the coast. They finally figured out where he was and all that, and the air traffic controllers had to provide instructions about how to fly the plane. Thank God... One of the air traffic controllers was actually a flight instructor. So he took the lead in that moment, and he's guiding this guy through all the processes of how to fly this plane, how to keep the wings level, how to maintain airspeed, how to control his altitude, uh, how to locate the airport. I think, if I remember correctly, they actually told him, look for the big chunk of pavement is literally, I think, what they told him. I was reading about this last night. And they were guiding him through the whole process. And the, the, the air traffic controller, who's also a flight instructor, he was, he was, here's the thing, he's a flight instructor, but he was not experienced on this particular airplane. So he is literally just trying to figure it out. And he, they printed out a photograph of the cockpit for the air traffic controller because it's kind of all the same at the end of the day, right? That was his perspective. He's like, okay, I've never flown this plane before, but I'll probably be able to recognize the controls. And he's coaching this passenger, now turned pilot, about how to control this airplane. And eventually, he was able to land safely, uh, and everybody was fine. Even the pilot ended up being uh, okay. But... Uh, in that moment, I just can't even imagine what that would be like and how that would feel. The, the feelings of utter hopelessness, maybe not hopelessness, but helplessness. It's like, okay, I, I, I don't know what to do. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it, but I don't know what to do. And he was, I'm sure he was hanging on every single word that was coming out of this air traffic controller's mouth on the other side of the radio. He had no idea what to do. There was no way within himself that he was going to be able to successfully land that plane. He was completely and totally dependent on the words of the air traffic controller. In our text this morning, we're going to be looking at some of the final words of Jesus. Uh, They are included in what is known as the farewell discourse. This is Jesus His arrest and his crucifixion is hours away. He's with his disciples. Much of Jesus' ministry is is, uh, certainly there's moments where he gets away by himself and he gets away with his disciples. And oftentimes he's in front of crowds and there's people all around. But in this moment, in the setting for our text, the context for our text is he's just with his disciples and he's giving them final instructions. He's like, I'm going to be going. We looked at that last week, right? But he says, I'm going to go away. I'm going to be gone. And this is his farewell discourse. These are his final words and his final instructions to his followers. The disciples are paying attention. Imagine if that passenger hadn't been paying attention. Imagine if he's like, oh, I saw this on a movie once. I can figure this out. I don't need your help. The the disciples, it's interesting, uh, in the last chapter, John 14, there's some dialogue going on, but from here on, there's not a lot of dialogue, at least that's recorded for us. It's just Jesus talking, and the disciples are hanging on his every word. And in our text, it contains, as Ryan mentioned already, we're in uh, this series looking at the I am statements of Jesus, these identity statements where Jesus is communicating who he is, He's saying, this is what I want you to understand about me. This is what I, know I would need you to be crystal clear on. This is what I want you to understand about me. And in understanding this about me, I want you to understand the implications of these things for you, what this means for you. If this is true of me, this is what it means for you. And so that's what we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. But before we get into it, would you bow in prayer with me? Jesus, thank you, Lord, for... Um, This opportunity that we get to gather here this morning, Lord, we pray that uh, you would just have your way in this place, that you would be with me, that you would help me to articulate only the words that you would have me say, that you would help me to share your truth with your people. On the other side, Lord, filter our ears. Maybe we receive only that which you have for us. Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to get into your word together, we ask for your spirit to do an incredible work. We recognize, Lord, that we, um, it's not just our own understanding that we're dealing with, but that the spirit is going to illuminate things. It's not just my ability to speak and to talk, but the Holy Spirit will empower and enable to, to be able to talk with clarity and with authority. And so, Jesus, right now, we just, are, just say, okay, here we are, and we just ask for you to have your way in our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, John 15 is where we're at. We're going to be looking at the first several verses uh, in John 15 here. And uh, he starts off with this identity statement. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. "'Remain in me, and I in you. "'Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself "'unless it remains on the vine, "'neither can you unless you remain in me. "'I am the vine, you are the branches. "'The one who remains in me and I in him "'produces much fruit, "'because you can do nothing without me. "'If anyone does not remain in me, "'he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. "'They gather them, throw them into the fire, "'and they are burned. "'If you remain in me and my words remain in you,' Ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified in this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So I don't know if you picked up on it, but there are certain moments within this text, within this passage, that are like gulp moments. Like, ooh, what does that mean? This is a difficult Bible passage. That's the fancy theological term, difficult Bible text passage. There are multiple places within this passage where there is interpretations all over the map. There's not a lot of consensus. There's there's these grenades, so to speak, in the middle of of these, of of this passage here, where there's, you know, in Jesus is sort of, you know, providing us with this metaphorical communication. And so Bible scholars and pastors, they are trying to figure out the symbolism and the significance of all these things and trying to interpret it. In this passage, there's probably about four different sermons. There's all these kinds of things that we have to, and that I had to work through this week as during my prep. But I believe that even with the diverse interpretations and, and takes on this passage, I believe that the main gist, the main point of the passage is, is pretty obvious. And so that's what's going to be our focus. And so he, And we're just going to do some text work, and then we'll get into some of the ways that some of this stuff is applied. But in verse 1, he says here, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. And so this is Jesus identifying himself as the true vine. He's saying, I am the one. I am the source. I am the one that provides life. I am the one that provides what you need. And he says, the, my Father is the gardener. And so Jesus is showing us here, and he's speaking of, once again, just as he had done in the previous chapter, as we looked at last week, Jesus is sort of once again reiterating and discussing and highlighting this, this special relationship that he has with the Father, something that would have been a significant claim, a bold thing to be able to say. And He says, my Father is the gardener, and it says there in verse two, every branch in me That does not produce fruit, he removes. We see that what's happening here is that the Father, being the gardener, is interested in tending to the branches and is interested in working in such a way that results in greater fruit. The Father is interested in us bearing fruit. Now, when it talks about here in verse 2 where it says he removes, every branch of me that does not produce fruit, he removes. There's an alternate uh, possible translation for this, for the word removes. The word re- removes could also mean he lifts up. And there's plenty of debate back and forth between, you know, scholars and stuff. Like whether this should be translated as the word removes or whether this should be translated as the word Uh, For lifts up. The idea being that if it's a branch that does not bear fruit, he is lifting the fruit up off the ground. He's suspending it somehow in a modern day, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, I was trying to recall the actual fancy word for it. Anyway, there's a fancy word for grape people, grapevine people, (laughs) wine people. No. Uh, it's not that. That's a specific wine thing. Anyway, I'm going to move on. <laughs> but within these grape people <laughs> that take care of grape vines, we see them. We see these wire trellises, right? That's what we commonly and what we typically see. In the first century, some of the practices, it may have been something like that. But the whole idea is sometimes they'd lift the vines up onto poles, whatever. The whole point is, it's this idea that every branch that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. And it's positioning the branch in such a way that it can bear more fruit. It's off the ground. It's not going to rot on the ground. It gets more airflow. It gets more direct sunlight. It gets more heat, which is something that it needs for the fruit to grow and to ripen. So that's, that's where this alternative possible translation comes from. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, he, he lifts up. Now, um, it also, uh, if we do go with removes, uh, pruning, this removing, the pruning, if it is removes, it has the same desired outcome. What did I say? He lifts up. Why? To get it off the ground. Increase airflow, direct sunlight, uh, those sorts of things. Pruning does the exact same thing. Pruning is also removing the amount of uh, foliage that is creating maybe too much shade because grapes need direct sunlight in order to grow properly. And so there's a bit of a there's a bit of a, a debate there. But here's the reality: it actually doesn't matter if whether it's lift up or he's removing. He's doing this so that the branch will bear more fruit. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes or lifts up, and he prunes, continuing on in verse 2, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. And so when we look at this language of the Father is working in such a way to produce more fruit in the branches, um, and his, he's interested, obviously, in producing and that there be more fruit produced. Think about, it, it's, it's on one hand, it's, it's likely about volume, the amount of fruit that's being produced. But I think also there's this idea of ongoing fruit, that it would continue to bear fruit year after year. Harvest after harvest because what's really, really interesting when you look into some of this stuff is just the, the role that annual pruning of the of the vine and of the branches has in future production of fruit. So it's more fruit in totality in volume, sure, but also probably has to do with this idea of ongoing fruit that fruit is yet to that fruit is still going to be produced in the future. Now, I am not, uh, I just, you know, demonstrated a second ago how ignorant I am about these sorts of things. I couldn't remember what the word was. It starts with a V. I know that. But anyway, it kind of like is similar to the word agriculture, but not. But anyway, if you're like me and you don't have any idea about these things, and I had to do a crash course and all this stuff, but if you're like me, you don't know anything about grapevines and you read about the vine and the branches, you might be envisioning in your mind, you just think, okay, there's two parts, right? There's a vine and then there's the branches. And so you might be envisioning something that resembles a, uh, uh, th- this particular plant that is sitting on Ryan's dinner table. <laughs> vine and branches, right? There's the main stem or whatever you call it, right? Then there's these offshoot deals with leaves. Okay, so that would be the branch, right? And then this part, that's the, that's the vine, right? No, no, that's not uh, actually how it works. Uh, a vine is much more complicated, and if it's not pruned, you end up with this. Look at that. A complete mess. That's what a grapevine looks like when it's not tended to and uh, when, it's not, uh, when it's not pruned. Notice the overgrowth of the foliage, right? It will produce fruit, but it won't produce good fruit and it won't produce a lot of fruit because of, because of all of that. And the, the, the foliage, it's, it's diverting resources. Uh, there's too much shade, airflow is restricted, all these things. These are not the ideal circumstances. This is not what the gardener is going for in, in, in wanting to uh, create a, an opportunity for this plant or this vine to bear lots of fruit. Now, if you take this, this is like during fruit-bearing season, everything's green. In the off-season, I'll show you what this looks like, that will turn into this. Dried out, barren, they actually call this dormant. This is the dormant phase. But this is a grapevine that has not been tended to, has not been pruned, and it's a rat's nest. I was reading uh, earlier this week about a guy who bought a house and apparently there was a, a grapevine in the backyard that hadn't been attended to, had been completely neglected. And he didn't even realize that it was a grapevine because it wasn't up on a trellis. It wasn't on the side of the fence or anything like that. It was on the ground. And he just thought it was a big pile of, of, of uh, sticks and twigs. But really, it was a grapevine. But that's, that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like in the off season. But when it is properly pruned, which also happens in the off-season, it will look like this. Now, that's what, if you ask me to take care of your plants and you go on vacation or whatever, this is what your plants are going to look like when you get home. Because I don't know what I'm doing. But apparently, this is how you trim and how you prune a grapevine. This main piece coming up here from the ground, that's called the trunk. The the two arms that go out, those are called cordons. And then from the cordons are these, what they call canes. There are multiple uh, parts to a grapevine. Jesus is not using very technical language. It's the vine and the branches. He's trying to keep it simple. But grapevines are actually quite complicated. And tending to them is quite complicated. It was actually kind of fun studying all this. Uh, going, getting into this, I'm like, man, I'm going to turn into a plant daddy just like Ryan. But, <clears throat> but this is what it, you, you, you look at this and you think, man, you just killed it. Now, this thing is well-prepared and totally prepped to bear good fruit. Because after this, you get this. I love this feedback. This is great. I hope the listeners on the podcast can hear that. It'll make me feel affirmed. Um, yeah, so that, that pruned grapevine looks like this. So yes, there's foliage. It's the natural production of foliage. But there's space and there's, there's room for the, the, the fruit to grow. There's not too much shade. There's plenty of airflow. This, this grapevine is well-prepped And is apparently, because it was well prepped, it's apparently bearing lots of fruit. And if you go back to the previous photo, um, as you can, it probably goes without saying, but like the the process of pruning was brutal, right? You know that they would cut down, as it's probably obvious from the photo, the process of pruning cuts the the, the vine down to 80, 90% gets cut away. Just so it could be properly uh, prepped in such a way that it will bear the fruit that we saw uh, in the next photo, so that the harvest would look like that. Now, here's the thing where are we? In verse 2, yeah, where he says he prunes every branch, there's also uh, a potential variant translation for the word prunes as well. It's the same word, it could also be translated as cleans, right? So if you look at that one photo where it was a complete rat's nest, right, and then followed up with the properly pruned grapevine, it's essentially been cleaned up. All the stuff has been cut away. So this word in verse 2 where it says he prunes every branch, it could be translated as he cleans every branch. It's, it's, it's Basically, it's another form of the exact same word. which helps verse 3 to make sense. You are already clean because the word I have spoken to you. If you don't understand that about verse 2, you suddenly come to verse 3, like, what are you talking about? I thought we were talking about the vine and the branches and pruning and removing and all that kind of stuff. And he says, you are already clean. That's because of what I just explained, that in verse 2, that word prunes can be translated as cleans. And so he he, he says here, you are already clean because the word that I have spoken to you. He says you. This is the first time he is now directly speaking to his audience. Who is his audience? Eleven people. It's his disciples. The setting here is probably just after they had left the upper room where the Last Supper was going down, right? Jesus is washing their feet, all of that. Judas has already split, Judas has already left because he's going to go sell out Jesus. All that's left are the remaining 11 disciples, and he says to them, you are already clean. You are already clean. And I I think it's interesting that they are already clean. He's not pronouncing them clean right then and there. He's saying you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Jesus is telling them, that he has already cleaned them up, he's already prepared them to be fruitful by the word which he has spoken to them previously. And here's the thing that's really, really interesting. You are already clean, you're already pruned, you're already prepared, you're already clean. When it comes to pruning and things like that, what's interesting is that pruning takes place before Fruit bearing Pruning doesn't take place while the fruit is being produced. I would have assumed that, that this plant is now growing or the vine is now growing and the branches are now growing, and we're going to fine-tune, we're going to rip off the suckers. That's actually a technical term on a grapevine. Google it if you don't believe me. I'm going I'm to tweak this vine. I'm going to clean this vine as we go. But that's not when, that's not when they do it. Pruning happens prior to fruit-bearing. So Jesus is saying, I've already prepared you for fruit. I've already pruned you so that you can bear fruit. I've already cleaned you in such a way that now you are ready and positioned to bear fruit. Fruit, uh, the, uh, the, the pruning, that takes place once a year after the harvest, and then it just grows. And the pruning has everything to do with the state of that vine and those branches and their ability to bring out a harvest. There's no, you know, plan B. There's no, we'll figure it out along the way. It's the process of pruning, which is very careful, which is very intentional, and it determines the type of fruit that is grown and how that fruit is grown. Pruning happens before fruit bearing. The fruit comes much later, Probably uh, with a typical grapevine, it's like six months. <clears throat> Harvest is around October. The pruning takes place February, March. That kind of a thing. But what is this word? He says, you are already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. What is this word? Well, it could be, uh, we looked at this uh, previously, um, uh, you know, in in previous weeks, we're, especially last week in particular, there's this uh, in chapter 13, the the setting again of the of the 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 Last Supper, and this is where Jesus is saying his other I am statement about you know I'm gonna I am I am uh, the way the truth of the life and those sorts of things. But in John chapter 13, here uh, we have the account of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, uh, and this is what he says in John 13. He says. Um, oh, let me actually prep this up. What's going on here is that he's washing the disciples' feet, and he comes up to Peter. And Peter's like, no way. <laughs> and he says here in verse 8, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus replies, replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet then, but my hands and my head. In other words, like if, okay, if that's how it goes, like, okay, forget the feet. Let's give me a bath. And Jesus responds, he says, one who has bathed doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, and that would be Judas. So it's possible that this word that you are already clean because of this word that I've spoken to you, it's possible that Jesus is referencing what he had already told them just prior. It's the same setting. <clears throat> but I'm inclined to think, that this statement is about being clean. The statement about being clean is a reference to the ways that he had discipled them over the three years that he had been with them. The ways that he had discipled them and prepared them for ministry over those years. For for all that time, he was preparing them to be able to bear fruit. So the word that he has spoken to them is, is all that he had been saying and all he had been doing with them in their time together. But notice... Jesus is saying that he was the one that you are already clean by the word I have spoken. He's not, clearly what's happening here is they they didn't clean themselves up. This is not something that they were able to achieve through human effort. They weren't able to do it on their own. It's something that he had done in them. So their ability to be fruitful wasn't earned or attained through human effort at all. It's something that Christ had done in them. Okay, cool, now what? And here's the kicker. He says, okay, verse four, remain. This is the key here. Some other tra- translations say abide. We can use those words interchangeably here. He's saying remain in me or abide in me. You were already cleaned by the word that I have spoken to you. You are prepared for fruit. You are pruned and readied to bear fruit. He says now remain in me and I in you. Verse four. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, the one who remains in me, and I in him produces much fruit, because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and withers, they gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Why remain from those three verses we just read? so that we can bear fruit. We cannot bear fruit if we don't remain in him. We've been prepared and prepped to be fruitful, but we must remain. So what is it? What is this fruit? What are we talking about? What does it mean to be fruitful? I think a lot of times when we we think about uh, bearing fruit as Christians, a lot of times we think in terms of good works, right? I'm going to bear fruit. I'm going to demonstrate. I'm going to show. We speak of it in outward terms, right? So I'm going to go to church a lot. That's a part of the fruit. I'm going to read my Bible a lot. That's a part of the fruit. I'm going to pray a lot. I'm going to help little old ladies across the street. You know, I'm going to give to the poor. All these things, we view that stuff. We, we typically think of things that we do, outward things that we do. That is fruit. <clears throat> now, I would say that Certainly, the the fruit in our lives would include all of those things, but I believe it's much more than that, and we'll look at more of that in in a minute. But he says here in verse 5, you can do nothing without me. The reality here is both the inward fruit and the outward fruit, any kind of spiritual fruit that's being produced in our lives, it can only be produced by abiding in the vine, by remaining in the vine, We can't produce fruit by circumventing the vine. Think about that. And think about what we think about when we are thinking about bearing fruit. I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to position myself in such a way where I can bear fruit. We draw a straight line between us and our objective of bearing fruit. And there are times where we completely circumvent Jesus. We completely circumvent the vine and we think that if I just do this and I just do that and I just get my stuff together and I just figure this thing out or if I had the opportunity or whatever, we think that we can by ourselves bear fruit. But he's saying here, you can do nothing without me. We can do nothing without him. Without the vine, the branch can do nothing. What this is saying is that we can't produce what the Father desires to produce in us. There's all kinds of things that we can do, but we can't do what the Father wants to do in us. The stuff that that we need the Father to produce in us, only he can do. I'm going to keep saying that like 12 different ways until we get it. We can't circumvent This process, we can't produce fruit within ourselves. It's just the work of the flesh, and it will come to nothing. We need Jesus because we can do nothing without him. One Bible scholar described it this way. The bearing of fruit is simply living the life of a Christian disciple. The things that God wants to produce in and through our lives, only he can do. And this fruit is not just these outward things. It's all things that God wants to produce in us. The bearing of fruit is simply living the life of a Christian disciple. A Christian disciple. So it's the inward fruit as well as the outward fruit. It's easy for, As I mentioned, it's easy for us to identify the outward fruit, but it's also the inward fruit, <clears throat> And this is what he wants to produce in us. The father, as the gardener, as we abide in the vine, desires to shape us and transform us, to cultivate and develop within us fruit that he has appointed us to bear. Now, what what might this look like? We talked about some goofy examples about the outward fruit, but like, so just some examples of, of inward fruit. Maybe it's, it's more love in your life. Maybe it's greater patience. Maybe it's deepening our trust. Maybe it's the greater capacity to forgive. Maybe it's the ability to resist sin and temptation, or uh, just in general, that heart change that is a result of a completely transformed life, and as that heart is changed, as we are transformed, the fruit there will be fruit in our lives as a result of this. I think it's interesting to think about if the fruit in our lives was the only thing that people could see in us, what would they conclude about us? Like if they didn't know that you're a nice person, right? If they didn't know how talented and skilled you are at whatever, but if all they knew about you was the fruit that was being produced in your life what would they conclude about you if that was the only thing they knew? Verse six, if anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown aside like a branch and he withers. If anyone does not remain in me, this is like basic stuff, right? If the branch doesn't remain in the vine, it's gonna get thrown aside like a branch and it's gonna wither why is it going to wither? Because it's not connected. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. A few months ago, um, I was in my backyard, and there's a, there's a bush in my backyard. And the, and, and the bush, I mean, it, there's, you know there's a main trunk or whatever, but quickly, there are branches all over the place coming out of this thing. It's a very dense bush, branches everywhere. But there's a canopy... And the canopy was green, but in the center of the canopy, there was a spot about this big that was all dried out and brown. I'm like, what is going on with this bush? Like, is it disease? Like, I got to call Plant Daddy Ryan over to figure this out? I don't know. What's going on? And so I, I get down, and I'm looking, and I'm tracing these branches from the canopy down towards the ground, towards the main trunk. And you know what I discover? There it is right there. I discover that those branches aren't connected to the tree. But in the, in the craziness of all those branches, I guess our gardener had gone down by the trunk and had snipped a bunch of stuff and hadn't bothered to remove the branches. And because there's, as you can see, part, branches everywhere, the, the cut-off branches remained. They just stayed stuck Within that, and I started just pulling the stuff out by handfuls. But this is the obvious illustration, right? And it's clear from the verse. If you don't remain in me, you're gonna get thrown aside and you're gonna wither. There's no way that life and fruit and sustenance and all of that can be transferred and taken out to the branches if the branches themselves are not connected where they need to be connected. If we do not remain, we will not bear fruit. Detached branches don't bear fruit. Now, often when people read this verse, they're like, okay, is this like a reference to hell? Like, what's going on here? There's this reference to hellfire, and sometimes we connect it in our minds. We make these, these connections to, to, to hell. It sounds like hell. Like, if I don't bear fruit, I'm gonna be plucked out. I'm gonna be removed Obviously, I'm going to wither and they're going to gather me and throw me into the fire to be burned. Some people take that. Uh, sometimes that's a plain reading. People assume that about the text. There are uh, scholars that, that take that position as well. But I, I just got to tell you that I, I, just can't, I just can't go there myself. In the context of what's happening here, considering who Jesus is speaking to, the context of this monologue... And this, the 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 time in his ministry, this farewell discourse, this just seems like a weird spot to suddenly address the doctrine of hell with those eleven people. So personally, I don't feel that. I see the I see the the, the reference to fire and all that kind of stuff, but I don't think that that's what this is talking about. I don't think this is a matter of like, oh no, I'm going to get thrown into hell if I don't bear fruit. I don't think that's what this is talking about. I think Jesus here is just carrying out the metaphor and stating the obvious that. Branches that don't bear fruit are done away with, and, uh, and, and we saw that earlier. <clears throat> but we, I think we should be concerned about fruit or the lack of fruit in our lives. That is something that we should be concerned about, and, and the way that we take care of that is as we've already seen, is by remaining. Verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. This is part of the fruit, by remaining what happens is, in remaining, it will shape, because we are remaining, it will shape the way that we pray. By remaining, it will shape the way that we pray, because we will discover that our desires are being conformed to his desires, and the prayers that we pray will be the prayers that he wants us to pray that are in accordance with his will. This, 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 uh, this is part of that fruit the part of the fruit that is produced in our lives, where our prayers are being shaped. We are praying will of God prayers. We can count on these prayers being answered. In verse eight, my father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So fruitfulness is proof of our discipleship. Fruitfulness is proof of our discipleship. Disciples live fruitful lives. Peter and John um, in Acts, we see that they are preaching and they get busted. They get in trouble for this and they get arrested and they're being questioned and they have been arrested because they were preaching Jesus. They get arrested and while they're being questioned, Peter is like, a, he could care less, right? He starts preaching up a storm while he's being questioned. <clears throat> And it says in Acts four verse 13, when they observed the bold uh, with, yeah when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. Disciples live fruitful lives. the proof is the fruit. now to be a follower of Jesus and to be a disciple of Jesus is more than Uh, more more than just a claim that we make, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. Actually, that's a pretty low bar. Anyone can claim anything. The reality is, is there fruit in my life to back up my claim that I am a follower of Jesus? When we get into uh, difficult situations having to do with, you know, um, what is typically referred to as church discipline and restoration, maybe a brother or sister is... um, engaged in um, sin, and they're not remaining, and the fruit of that is manifested in sin in their lives. As the church family, we have a duty and responsibility to to lovingly reach out and call out and call for their repentance so that they would be uh, more in line with the gospel and restored into our church community because sin brings a schism. Sin causes division, and That needs to be done away with so that we can be restored. When that goes unheeded and there is no repentance, ultimately what it can result in, a separation between that person and the church family. Paul has very, very clear and very, very strong words about a separation needs to take place. And practically speaking, one of the reasons for that is because the church family can no longer affirm the profession of the person that they are a follower of Jesus. So everything I just said about calling someone to repentance I'm specifically talking about someone who considers themselves a follower of Jesus and names themselves a disciple of Jesus. And they claim to be a follower of Jesus and a part of our community, which is following Jesus. But their life, their, profession, their life does not measure up to their profession. And so the community comes around and says, we can no longer affirm your profession. A distinction is being made here and must be made here. It's easy to make all kinds of claims, but there must be evidence to back up our claims because a life, uh, our, we must live our lives in such a way that there's evidence that we are followers of Jesus. But the key with all of that is to remain because we can do nothing without Him. And we need to let that sink in. We can do nothing without Him. We cannot produce the kind of fruit that God wants to produce. In our lives. We can do nothing without Him. You want to fight sin and temptation? Jesus says, You can do nothing without me. You want to make it to heaven one day and have all, and, and you think that you can have you think that by doing good you will outweigh what you've done bad and you, and you want to spend eternity with me? Jesus says, You can do nothing without me. You want to have faith to press on when everything falls apart? Jesus says, you can do nothing without me. It's interesting here because when, when this statement is made, this is in verse 5 where he says this, you can do nothing without me, it, this, this nothingness actually encompasses everything. There's nothing you can do to produce the kind of fruit in your life that the Father desires to produce in your life. We can only produce counterfeit fruit. We can only produce Counterfeit fruit. We can't produce what God wants to produce in us. Without Him, we can do nothing. And when we finally understand that without Him, we can do nothing, we'll realize that all we can do is abide. We'll realize that all that we can do is remain. And I'll tell you what, I would rather abide and I'd rather remain then try and struggle and fight and strive and figure out how to produce fruit in my life. If you are going through that, and you're like, man, why can't I get this together? Why can't I produce the fruit in my life that I want to produce? Why, why can't I see, why is my life not going the way that I want it to go? Why am I not following Jesus the way I want to follow Jesus? My question is, for you to ask yourself a question, are you remaining? Are you abiding Or have you detached yourself from Christ? Sometimes we detach ourselves from Christ, and it still has the form of religiosity and spirituality. We say statements like, oh, I go to church, and we actually believe it. We show up at a church service, and we think that that's good. We think that that all by itself is remaining. Guess what? All kinds of people come into this place every Sunday morning, and no claims are made and no assumptions are made about where everyone's at spiritually, We have people that show up on Sundays that hate God. And we have people that show up on Sundays that deeply love God. So I think sometimes as Christians, we can have things in our life that make us think, oh yeah, yeah, I'm I'm remaining. I'm jumping through the hoops. I'm doing these things. I have certain beliefs, but there's not an intimacy there with Jesus. There's not a connection between the branch and the vine that." That remaining in him and him remaining in us, that that deep connection, that's not taking place. If we're gonna bear fruit, we must remain. We must abide. So, how do we do that? How do we remain? How do we abide? The interesting thing here, and I love this actually, Jesus doesn't tell us. He just says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. I'm the true vine. My father's a gardener. He's going to prune, he's going to remove so that you can bear fruit. You can do nothing without me. And I need you to remain. Remain in me and you'll bear fruit. Okay, Jesus, how do I do that? I think it was pretty obvious to the 11 in the room. Actually, they had already left the room according to the end of chapter 14, but he's on his way to Gethsemane, essentially. He's on his way to be arrested and then ultimately crucified. And he doesn't spell out for them how they are to remain, how they are to abide. I think that they, uh, it would have been obvious to them, and I think most of the time, we understand too, but sometimes we want someone else to do all the hard work for us and so like, tell me what to do. Give me the list. And the problem with that is like sometimes that's an outward attempt at producing fruit that doesn't flow out of remaining in Christ, right? Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. So at the risk Of reinforcing that wrong perspective, I will offer you some suggestions. First, how do we remain? How do we abide? First, love Jesus more than anything. Love Jesus more than anything. Utterly and totally and completely reject any sense of independence from Christ. Love Jesus more than anything. Surrender every aspect of your life. Don't have anything in your life that would be considered an idol. What is an idol? Something that takes the place of God. That could be a seemingly good thing that could take the place of God. So love Jesus more than anything. Whatever you love in your life the most, love Jesus more. Nothing can compete with Jesus. Allow him to direct your will and transform Your affections. That's how we can abide, by loving Jesus more than anything. The second thing we can do is we got to get to abide and to remain. We got to get the word in us. Now, typically when we talk like that, we think, okay, I got to read the Bible more. It's like, okay, cool, whatever. Like, that would be helpful. And it's part of that. But just reading the Bible is, is just one of the ways to get the word in us. I think it's good to memorize scripture. It's good to study. Um, and, but we need to get the word in us. And the, the problem with uh, us having a too specific of an outworking of that or an idea how we do that is that we can sometimes, and this applies to other areas of our, of our relationship with Jesus too uh, and the Christian experience, we can sometimes put too much stock and, and, and put too much emphasis in, again, the outward things that we do and actually stay quite detached from Jesus. But one of the ways that we have developed here at Collective to try to make sure that we are in the word and we are getting the word in us is to approach it from a variety of ways. And so our weekly Bible passage is part of that where we just, we study and we, we personally prepare and we, we read through the scriptures um, throughout the week. And then on that upcoming Sunday, we preach on that same passage. So all last week, I know all y'all were studying this passage I know you are. I believe in you. Um, Now we preach on it. And then following up after that, we gather in our discipleship groups to work out the implications and the applications of those things. So we're engaging Scripture in different types of ways, studying and prepping and, and reading and getting familiar with it, and then sitting under the teaching of God's Word, and then working out with other followers of Jesus, like, how do I actually live this out? These are some of the ways that we can get the Word of God in us Also, if we're gonna get the word of God in us, we have to obey it. We have to obey the scriptures. That's number three. If you're gonna remain, you need to care about what God has said. If you're gonna remain, you gotta care about what God has said. And I think sometimes we can deceive ourselves and think that we're good with God while not giving a rip about whether we are obeying him or not. We think we've punched our ticket. We think we're good. God wants me to be happy. And it's, you know, some strange coincidence that every, all the ways that I want to live my life and the ways that I want to relate to God, oh, look at that. Apparently God's cool with all that. We make God in our image. And we demand that God relate to us the way that we relate to him. And it's weird how that always aligns. It's wrong. It's dead wrong. Obey the scriptures. That's what we got to do. First John says this, starting at verse 2. This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. We make up all kinds of ways that we want to live our lives while claiming to be connected when clearly we not, we're not, when we don't walk in obedience. And sometimes we just rely on, oh yeah, like I said a prayer when I was seven, and so now I'm good, and I got baptized when I was 11, and you know, I'm a Christian now, and I like to relate to God in these other ways. You know, I completely ignore scripture, but you know, I paint, you know, and I like, I like to paint, that's the way I can spend time with God, by painting being creative, it's like, well, that's cool and everything, but like, we have to allow the word of God to shape our understanding of God, and we need. To, and God calls us to follow Him in obedience. And God is not just trying to make you happy, and uh, He that that's not what this is about, right? He calls us to sacrifice at times. <clears throat> Number four, talk with God. That's how we remain. Talk with God. And just like I was saying earlier about letting the scriptures get into us, when I say talk to God, I'm not just saying six o'clock in the morning, get out of bed early, get on your knees and, and pray for 45 minutes, although if you want to do that, that'd be fine, that'd be cool. Uh, I think that could be helpful. But when I say talk with God, I'm not just talking about that, although it, can, it could include that, <clears throat> but I think sometimes we can just go through these rote patterns in our lives where, uh, where we talk to God without actually talking to him. We talk to him without actually talking to him. I mean, I've done that. I did something that resembled a prayer, but I was just talking. I mean, to be totally honest, that happens. I think we all experience that. And that's one of the things I love about our prayer nights because we get to slow down. And it's easy to catch ourselves going, wow, like, am I really connecting with God right now? Especially when a prayer is a formality. And you know, we pray before a meal, pray before a church service, pray for someone who asks us to pray for them. And we kind of go through the motions and say all the words, but are we really, really aware of the ways that we are talking to God and connecting with God and remaining with God in that moment or not? But that's one of the ways that we can, by talking with God. And that can manifest in a variety of ways. We can talk to God throughout our day. It's not just the set time of prayer, although that's helpful and good, but it's, it is also just spending our time talking with God throughout our day. Number five, be sensitive to the Spirit. That's how we remain, and that's how we abide. Be sensitive to the Spirit. For us to remain in Him, we need to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And if we remain in Him, the promptings of the Spirit will be more clear to us. And there's nothing more exciting and humbling than when those opportunities take place, where we realize, oh my goodness, I, I, heard, I actually heard from God there. And, in, and what's happening is that our ears are being trained, metaphorically, to hear God's voice by remaining in the Spirit. I had a powerful, at the risk of boasting, I hope it doesn't come off this way. I don't mean it this way. I mean it to encourage you. I had a powerful experience with this uh, maybe a month ago. I had a dream of someone, a ministry friend of mine, and he was telling me about a really difficult situation that a family was going through. And he's, and he's just talking about how difficult it is and they're really, getting, they're really going through it. And in my dream, I was just listening and, my, and my, it was sort of starting to break my heart. And at the end, he says, and that family is mine. And then I woke up. And I thought, that's weird. And I haven't talked to this guy in like four months. <clears throat> so I reached out to him. I'm like, hey. Uh, I had a weird dream about you. And I, you know, I've know, been praying for you all morning. How are things? Is everything okay? And he goes, he texted me back right away, and he's like, this is crazy. You had no way of knowing this, but um, we just experienced a loss in our family. And what it was, what it ended up doing, I'm getting chills thinking about it again. And what I was able to do is that God was reaching down to love and comfort this family by bringing me into that. I, I, I was only a channel. It's not that I was so encouraging. They were left with a greater awareness of God because God would, would work in that way. A guy that I haven't talked to in about four months, that the Spirit gave me this dream, and I started praying for him. And it was so encouraging to me, thinking, man, if I'm in that situation, because you know what it's like when you're going through a difficult time, and you're like, man, does anybody like, care? Does anybody know? I don't want to ask for help because I don't want to make it about me. So I'm just going to like keep it to myself. But this really sucks right now. And even in those moments, the Spirit can prompt one of you to reach out to somebody else, to minister to them in a way that only the Spirit can lead you to do. Stay close to the Spirit. Remain sensitive to the Spirit and the leading of the Spirit. That's how we can abide. That's how, how, that's how we can remain And so I mentioned this earlier, but when it comes to these things, if we're not seeing the kind of fruit in our lives that we desire to see, the question we need to ask ourselves is are we abiding? Are we remaining? And then sit in that and sit with that and see how the Spirit brings to mind things that He wants you to pay attention to. In the stillness of that moment, am I abiding, Lord? And not in a, it's not a like a, it's not a question that we ask because we're seeking to spiritually punish ourselves. It's not that. It's just truly seeking our, searching our hearts where it's like, Lord, I wanna remain in you. Am I? Show me the ways that I'm not. How can I abide more? Because I don't wanna miss you. This relationship abide in me and I in you. And as you abide in me and as I abide in me, you will bear fruit. This whole, I wanna bear fruit in my life. I want to take advantage of this relationship that I can have with you, that you established with me. You are the vine; I'm just the branch. But I want to stay connected to you, Lord. Is there a way that I'm not connected to you? Is there a way that I've not surrendered my life completely? Am I? Is there a way that I'm not looking to receive all that I can receive from you because I'm trying to circumvent you to do things my own way? <clears throat> That's the question we need to ask ourselves: Am I abiding? Am I remaining? And the beauty of the grace of God that, that in those moments, with, if maybe we realize, oh, wow, you know, I'm not really remaining like this, or here's a way where I'm not abiding, the beauty of that is that the grace of God is there and his arms are open wide and his invitation is to come. And the good news is that we can repent and we can turn and we can change the way we're moving so that we can truly remain and abide in him. So I would say this. And let this be my invitation to you today. Let today be the day that you reorient your life, you assess some things, and you, you, uh, you restructure your life around Christ and allow everything to be about him. Let today be the day that you recognize that you can do nothing without him. Let today be the day where you really, truly get it and you understand that and you live according to that. Let today be the day that you stop circumventing the, the vine, trying to produce spiritual fruit on your own. Jesus is not calling us to work harder or to do more. He's inviting us to take advantage of the relationship that he makes possible, and that in this relationship that he's called us into, we don't have to fight to stay. We don't have to try harder. We just remain. We just abide with the knowledge that because we are abiding and because we are just there with him, experiencing that intimacy that we can with him, that he is going to produce fruit in our life. It's in Jesus, he's the true vine, right? The vine is delivering life and vitality to the branches. And so in Jesus, the true vine, that's where we find life. And we find life in him, and we know this from the, the broader story of the gospel. We find life in him, through his death and resurrection. And so it's because of that that we have the ability to experience new life because he conquered sin and death and he died to give us life. And so this whole idea of what it means to have true life in Jesus, where we are abiding in the vine, can take on such a great significance in our life because we are secure in that. The true life... He said last week, we looked at that, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This life that he died to give us, this is how we can remain, experiencing the life that he has for us. And so today we have this opportunity to consider what are we going to do about this? What does it look like for us to remain? What does it look like for, for us to abide? Jesus made a way for us to do it. The invitation is there. All we have to do is receive it. Let's pray.